You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Why don't I just pray to begin our time together. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your message this morning, that you would soften our hearts towards you and to each other. And God, I pray that you would give me a voice to speak your truth, not only to our heads, but to our hearts. May your spirit be working among us and bringing much glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2004, an artist called Michael Goff ran an art exhibition, or rather a visual exhibition called Iconography. And in this exhibition, what he did was he paid an artist or an actor to dress up as Jesus in the busy streets of London and to walk around interacting with people. And what Michael Goff would do is he'd, I guess, sit around the corner and discreetly take photos of these interactions. He wanted to see what people would do. And the striking thing is that what he found is that most people were too busy and just passed him by. They had meetings to be at. They had responsibilities to fulfill. They had places to be. They were too busy to stop and talk with this actor playing Jesus. And the takeaway very well could be, well, people are too busy to stop and talk with Jesus. But actually, he said there was one person who stopped. But it wasn't who you would expect. The person who stopped and talked with this Jesus was the hostess of a strip club that they passed by. This woman, who was estranged from her mum, said that the only thing she still had of her mother's was a picture of Jesus that she kept by her bed. And so she was drawn to this Jesus when he walked past. It's not who you would expect. But in some ways, it's a retelling of the story we find in Luke chapter 7. That there is an unlikely person at a dinner who sees Jesus for who he truly is and hears what he is saying. Unlike those who are too busy or too consumed with their own agendas and walk right past. But to see that, we actually need to hear some of the context. Now, what we read in the first verse is that Jesus has been asked to sit at the seat, uh, sit at the table of a Pharisee. Now, what's a Pharisee? A Pharisee, if you've grown up in the church, you'll know that they were religious leaders in Israel. They were very important and influential. But their particular fixation, their particular wound was around the occupation of the promised land by Rome. Rome had taken over the land promised to Israel by God and the Pharisees were determined to get it back. And the message they, they preached was striking because what they saw everywhere was compromise. Everyone has compromised and we need to purify ourselves. See, they believed that until Israel returned to purity or became pure, God would withhold the promised land from them. And to be honest, there's some good biblical precedent for this. So in Deuteronomy 28, uh, we have a blessing from God that if they will obey the Lord uh, by diligently observing all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But what you find in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is not only blessings for obedience, but curses 
for disobedience, that God would withhold things from them when they strayed from his path. And so what we find 49 verses later is one of the curses is that the Lord will bring a nation from far away from the end of the earth to swoop down on you like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a grim-faced nation showing no respect to the old or favour to the young. That sounds an awful lot like Rome. And so what the Pharisees were saying is, look, God said that there'd be punishments for disobedience. This is one of the punishments. We've been disobedient. Let's get back to being obedient again. And the way they did this was says we need to purify ourselves, but we need to do a better job than anyone else has ever done in our history. So what they did was take the purity laws that were reserved for temple priests, those who would enter the holy of the holies, and say those laws are for everybody. Everybody needs to meet that standard now for us to be pure. And so what they did was they preached a message of salvation by separation. That we needed to separate ourselves from everything that is unholy so that we could be pure again and have the promised land return to us. So what the Pharisees did was separate themselves from everything that could be considered unholy or impure like this woman. See, we're not told very much about this woman except what's repeated three times at least is that she's a sinner. Some translations have in the first verse that she's a well-known sinner or a, uh, a great sinner. So she's not just a garden variety sinner. She's well known around the city for being a sinner. Uh, and what most commentators prob- uh, like really agree on is that she's likely a prostitute. That's likely her profession, her occupation. But what strikes me about this is the lead-up. See, it says that she was in the city, uh, that everyone knows she's a sinner, but she's heard about Jesus and she's heard where he's eating. Now, this isn't that strange in the ancient, the ancient East because that's often what happened when there were these discussions to be had, when people would sit down for a meal and have discussions that's what they'd do. People would come off the streets and, and watch the interactions, particularly between religious leaders. But the thing that strikes me is that she is interested in Jesus. She's heard his message and she wants more. Tim Costello, the, the former head of, of World Vision in a variety of different organizations, tells a story once where he was meeting with prostitutes and drug dealers and having a Bible study with them. And then he was reading Luke chapter 7 and he remembers one of them saying, one of the ladies saying, Jesus sounds like a really great bloke. Because she could imagine going to this, like imagine a high-end party in maybe Turak or Bentley or one of the other well-to-do suburbs and what would happen if she turned up? how out of place she would feel, how judged she would be. She said he, she must have really loved Jesus to go to a party like that. What we find is that not only does Jesus love sinners, but sinners love Jesus. And so what does she do? She starts anointing him with this alabaster jar of ointment that she's brought. 
She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, we read that, and our first thought is that's a bit strange, right? I don't know about you, I haven't been drying anyone's uh, feet with my hair. I haven't been crying over anyone's feet. Like, that seems a world apart. But in this context, it's not just strange, it's actually inappropriate and explicit. See, letting down your hair was the kind of thing you only did in the bedroom. Joel Green, who's a Bible commentator, says that it's the equivalent of appearing topless in public. That's how explicit this is. That's how inappropriate it is. And yet, do you notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't set her to the side and say, well, maybe just, maybe just stop. Maybe slow down. Like, it's, it's fine. You don't have to do that. Maybe just sit to the side. He doesn't do that. That's sort of what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees condemn Jesus, right? They said to him, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is touching him. She is a sinner. In case you haven't heard or picked up, they think she's a sinner. They've mentioned it a few times. Jesus doesn't do that. The intimation in the story is that she's treating Jesus the only way that she knows how, as a client. This is the only way that she's been taught how to interact with men. And so that's how she's treating this man who she's heard this great message from. The Pharisees condemn her and condemn Jesus. And yet Jesus sees through what she's doing to see the love and the faith behind it. I don't know about you, I've, I've grown up in a generation where the Billy Graham rule was a big thing. I don't, just hands up if you've heard of the Billy Graham rule before. So a couple of people, right? The Billy Graham rule is a rule that Billy Graham, the the famous evangelist, had where uh, he would not meet one-on-one with a woman ever for two reasons. One was it was a sort of fence so that he wouldn't be tempted to do anything untoward, but also so that the suspicion of anything untoward would never be able to be levied against him. And so lots of ministers and lots of leaders follow this rule. Now, the thing about the Billy Graham rule is that it's a fence. It doesn't change anyone's heart, it just separates. It provides a layer of separation so that temptation might not occur or the suspicion of temptation might not occur. And yet this, the, the interesting thing, of course, is that if you've been at all following news surrounding the church, is that we have lots of issues surrounding ministers and church leaders with sexual abuse and with, with things relating to that. It doesn't change their hearts. From Ravi Zacharias to Carl Lentz, we've had scandal after scandal in the church because it doesn't actually change hearts. It separates, but it doesn't change desire. And the most striking thing about this interaction is that Jesus doesn't need offense. Jesus is, in, is having this incredibly inappropriate, incredibly explicit interaction with this woman or she's attempting to have with him and he turns down the temperature and sees her for who she is. In a world where too many leaders 
take innocent interactions and turn up the temperature and make them explicit or inappropriate. Jesus turns down the temperature. He sees her for who she truly is. He has a heart that is tuned to God's mercy and grace. Jesus sees this woman for who she really is beyond what she does. It's things like this that are behind why the Pharisees call Jesus a friend of sinners. Literally in the chapter beforehand, they call him three things. A friend of sinners and tax collectors, a drunkard and a glutton. So in verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the interesting thing is that he has lots of opportunities like Luke, who writes this, has lots of opportunities to say, well, that's not really true, is it? Jesus isn't like that at all. Except the very first opportunity he has to push back against that claim, he tells a story about Jesus being a friend of sinners. He's saying it's true. Jesus is a friend of sinners. What you've heard, the accusation, it's true, all of it. And the interesting thing is that the accusation actually goes a fair bit deeper. See, they call him a glutton and a drunkard, a drunkard. He eats too much, he drinks too much. Now, likely what's going on, Tim Chester in his book Meals with Jesus that we've been, we've been looking at and uh, we've been using and, and taking some things from there, he says that it's likely an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 21 which Melanie read out for us, which I heard after she finished. There was a, an exclamation almost like, that's a hard thing to hear. How Israel was to deal with the rebellious son, will they say the same words about Jesus? He's a glutton and a drunkard. What they're saying is, Jesus, you're the rebellious son. You go around calling yourself the son of God, yet you are just a rebellious son, and we know what to do with rebellious sons. We put them to death. That's the claim. We'll get rid of you that way. We know who you are. A friend of sinners, a glutton, a drunkard. You're nothing more than a rebellious son. And the incredible thing is that's exactly how Jesus dies. Jesus dies as a rebellious son. Not because he is one, but because that's how he's treated. He doesn't get stoned, he gets crucified. And he dies because they see him as blaspheming against God. He's the son they can't control. And so they put him on a cross. But the thing is that Jesus dies the death of a rebellious son so that rebellious sons and daughters of God everywhere might know what it is to have friendship with God. See, the Pharisees say, you are the rebellious son. Jesus says, treat me like that so that these brothers and sisters of mine might come into God's kingdom. I don't want to just be their friends. I want them to be my brothers and sisters. I want to adopt them into my family. That's the kind of king Jesus is. He's a friend of sinners. And so he goes on to tell this parable. It says, Jesus spoke up after they make this accusation that you should know who this woman is. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor has two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii is about a day's worth of wages. So one has a debt of just under two years' worth of wages, the other a couple of months. And when they could not pay, he cancelled the debts for both of them. Now, which of those will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven." And hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, many of Jesus' parables are difficult to understand and to wrap our head around what the true meaning is. This is not one of the hard ones. Jesus gets right to the point. Those who, know, those who have been forgiven know the value of forgiveness. Those who have experienced God's grace know what it is to give grace to others. Those who have been forgiven little love little. This woman didn't need to be reminded of who she was. She knows she's a sinner. She knows that she's far from the house of God. She knows where she's been, but she's attracted to Jesus because she's attracted to forgiveness. She knows the depth of her sin and so she knows the goodness of what Jesus is offering. He's not offering her ten steps for a better life. He's not offering seven ways to get closer to God. He's offering her real, true, deep forgiveness. I forgive your sins, which are many, are now as white as snow. Jesus offers true forgiveness. Forgiveness. And it's no surprise that the immediate response of the Pharisees and those at the table is, who is this man? Those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I love being Anglican. Like, obviously, I chose to align myself with the Anglican Church. I love being Anglican. I love being an Anglican minister. I love the prayer book. I love the liturgy. But one of the great dangers in being Anglican is that because we say confession every single week, we can end up saying it with our head and not our hearts. We can end up forgetting what it feels like to be forgiven by God. Now, I've been, I've been a Christian for 18 years, right? Now, uh, I preached, obviously, this morning at the 9 a.m. service, which makes me just about the youngest Christian there. But I want to ask the same question this morning. Has, has anyone here been following Jesus for more than 20 years? Just hands up if you've been following Jesus for more than 20 years. So many of us. How about, keep your hands up if you're more than 30 years. More than 40 years. More than 50 years. We've, got, we've still got three. I won't keep going. I keep going. But here's the thing. The longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is to forget the depth of forgiveness. 
the longer it's been since that moment or that, that time when God entered your life, the easier it is to forget what it actually means to be forgiven by God's grace and mercy and love. My most common prayer at the moment comes from Psalm 51. It says this. Uh, it's not there. That's okay. Uh, I know it off by heart. Psalm 51. Oh, it is there. Look at that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. What it's saying is, God, remind me of your grace. Take me back to that place when I knew deeply and intimately what it is to be saved and loved and accepted and forgiven by you. Because what happens when we forget what it means to be forgiven is that we forget to forgive others. When we forget what it is to receive grace, we become graceless in our interactions with others. We become just like the Pharisees. They know all the laws, they know all the words, they know what they're meant to do, but they don't get this. And the thing that's scary about this passage is that there's only one person in the whole section whose sins are forgiven. It's not the Pharisee. The only one, twice, Jesus forgives the sins of this woman. And so the task or the challenge for all of us is to keep meditating on the grace that has saved us. You've been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 5 years, 1 year, 2 months. It does not matter. Don't stop meditating on the, forgiven, on the forgiveness given to you in Christ Jesus. Keep that at the heart of what you do on your scripture reading, on your prayer life. Don't forget what it means to be forgiven. And the question we really should be asking at the end of this is, who is our woman? Now, very well, a woman like this could very well enter into our church. But the the reality is that there's many people like this. Men and women who enter into our church who might feel like they're far from the kingdom of God, who feel like they're distant from God, who feel like they won't be accepted, they don't know the right things to say at the right times, they don't look like anybody else here, they don't wear the right clothes, they don't have the right story, they're not, what, they're not, they don't feel like they belong. What is our heart response towards them? How do we treat them? Let's get specific. We, we have... Cranman has many homeless people and we have many people who've slept on our doorstep. What's our heart response to them? Is it frustration or is it love and acceptance and mercy? Throughout the pandemic, we've had people sleep outside in a caravan. Was our response frustration or love and acceptance and mercy? We have people who need, need things from us like food or money or resources, whatever it is, as our response, frustration. You should be doing better or is it love and acceptance and mercy? Friends, we cannot forget the forgiveness that God has given to us. And if you wonder whether you have, check your heart and how you interact with those who feel like they're far from God. Do you place yourself in a seat of judgment and think, well, if you would just do A, B, C, D, you would be better off? What do you say? There goes a sinner just like me. They probably need to be friends with God. They probably need to be friends with Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us this morning that God would soften our hearts, that he would soften our hearts to see with his eyes and to hear with his ears 
what he is doing in this world so that we can love like Jesus does. Can we do that now? Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for the Gospel of Luke and I thank you that Jesus keeps interacting with sinners, that he keeps interacting with unlikely people. God, I pray, I pray that we would have his heart. I pray that we would have his, his eyes and ears and heart to see what is going on in the world around us, that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees, only concerned with purification of ourselves, only concerned with our growth and our spiritual forward movement, but rather that we would know and remember what it is to be forgiven by God and having been reminded that we would offer that forgiveness to others. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see people like this woman and their experience in this place wouldn't be rejection, wouldn't be judgment, but would be a deep and profound acceptance on the basis that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus loves sinners. So God, I pray that you would give us heart to love and not to judge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.